Hello, brothers, sisters, and friends, and welcome to the You Are the Current Resident podcast. This is the official podcast of the National Association of Letter Carriers, the union that represents 280,000 active and retired city letter carriers employed by the United States Postal Service. I'm Ed Morgan, and sitting next to me, as always, is our national president, Brian Renfro. Hey, Brian, how you doing this week? Hey, Eddie, doing great. Again, glad to be back, and we've got a, a fun topic that, uh, at least fun for some people, but it's very important for all of us today. So excited to talk some some legislation and politics. So before we get into all that, so last week you mentioned that you were going to be in Region 4 at their rap session. How'd that go? Yeah, it went great. Dan Versus NBA out there, and everybody from the office did a fantastic job they had it in Cheyenne Wyoming which is a beautiful part of the country and uh, I was there on the opening day got to spend the entire morning with them and update the the folks that were there our, our branch leaders and on a lot of things that are going on including a lot of stuff we've talked about on this podcast and and hear from them and uh, due to my schedule I had to get out of there after that but I know they had the rest of that day and then I think two other full days of training planned on a variety of topics so you know it was good to see everybody out there it's always I would guess a lot of people listening to this podcast or have attended in, in the past their regional trainings and our NBAs do a great job of putting those on and it's always a, one of my favorite things I get to do to go out there and update our members and maybe more importantly get to hear from them so really well done by the folks out in region four and then where are you headed this week? Yeah, we similarly, um, Region 3 uh, in the state of Illinois, they are having their annual regional training this weekend. So headed out there here in a couple of days, and we'll be able to spend some time with them on Friday morning. And uh, similar to what we did out in Region 4. And got a couple more. Some of our regions do these in the spring, and some do them in the fall. Uh, so 3 is coming up here real soon. And then after that, in a couple of weeks, we've got Region 9 and Region 6 and Region 10. And in a couple of weeks after that, always the, the last one of the year, as far as our 15 regions go, is Region 2 out in the Northwest. So excited about having the chance to be with all those folks. And for those of you listening from those regions, it'll be attending those sessions. I look forward to seeing you. So today we're going to talk about legislation, politics, and how it affects letter carriers. We actually have a special guest uh, coming in today. Brian, do you want to introduce her? Yeah, when it comes to legislation and politics, we literally couldn't have anybody better. So our guest today is Chief of Staff Corey Blaylock-Keller, and and we'll hear a little more from her in a minute. But Corey, prior to uh, her becoming Chief of Staff uh, late in 2022, she was our Director of Legislative and Political Affairs for uh, I guess about eight years or so. So, and she still remains pretty heavily involved in legislation and politics, and she tends to be pretty entertaining too. So, I'm sure it'll be uh, be an excellent listen and and educational for for the listeners out there, regardless of you know what your level of involvement is in legislation and politics. We'll talk some about political side of things and our letter care political fund. We'll get into legislatively, not just our priority legislation, the things that are really important to us in this Congress, but a little bit about some process and where each of those stands. So here's my interview with NALC Chief of Staff, Corey Blaylock-Keller. Hey, Corey, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. (laughs) So as I mentioned earlier in the episode, in the intro, we are going to talk about legislation and politics, and we've got nobody better than you to talk about that stuff. So 
you currently are the chief of staff. I'll add you're the first woman to be chief of staff at NALC, which is fantastic. But prior to that, I think a lot of our listeners know you were our director of legislative and political affairs for, I think, about eight years prior to that. But why don't you tell us a little bit about just your history, maybe before you were at NALC and kind of what you've done you know, since you've been here and what your, just generally what your role as director was all about. Sure thing. Well, first, excited to be here. First time participant in the podcast. Probably will be the last time you invite me on the podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm, I'm Corey, and uh, I have been with the NALC for over 10 years. And uh, prior to coming over to NALC, I worked for another small labor union that represented FAA employees called Professional Aviation Safety Specialists. And there, uh, we represented about 11,000 people, so much smaller universe, much smaller footprint, but very similar issues representing federal employees at the FAA. So have been in the federal and postal space for over 20 years now, and uh, been in D.C. for 23 years. I am a native New Orleanian. And I will not be giving up that title anytime soon, despite how poorly the Saints may disappoint us from week to week. And I live here in in Washington, D.C. with my husband, Todd, and my two girls, Tess and Lila, 11 and 13. The girls, at least, are wonderful practice for dealing with all of the uh, characters that we interact with here in Washington and the administration and Congress. So that's what I got for you. And those two are like little lobbyists in training, so... So let's start with, I think, you know, there's people listening to this podcast that have been involved in legislation and politics, you know, with our union for years. And there's probably others listening that may even ask the the question, why do we even have to be involved in legislation and politics? And the Postal Service is an independent government agency. But still, when it comes to the Congress, it comes to the White House, you know, there's a lot of influence and a lot of impact they could potentially have, you know, on our job. So why don't you just talk to us a little bit about the White House, the Congress, the type of things that they have control over that can really impact our members and impact our union? Well, first things first. I mean, if you are not at the table, then you are on the menu. And that is 1000% accurate. And it's the reason that I love working for NALC because we have always been at the forefront of every fight, every good idea, every push in Congress and anything that's been successful, we've been able to steer and in many cases tailor some of our successes to move in a direction that's going to benefit our members. And I think you all know we are federal employees. And so that link and that continued commitment to the community is something that we, we often do. I think right now we're looking at a situation where we have brothers and sisters in the federal community who are sweating out a potential shutdown that could occur. We're filming this or recording this just days before uh, the government set to shut down. And while I'm uh, typically a pessimist, I'm feeling optimistic. Today, our leader, uh, McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy from California, who is wrangling a bunch of unruly children himself, is trying to keep the government funded past September 30th. And there have been a few failures over the last few days that have people sweating in the federal government. But as of today, he has a new plan that would 
fund the government and would uh, secure some border funding so that he can draw in some of his unruly children who don't want to be seen not protecting the border. So how that all plays out, we don't know. And while that is a, a little bit of a departure of some of our major priorities, it always is, the landscape is always something that we have to look at in order to figure out how we can pursue the next phase of priorities that we we continue to have beyond the Postal Service Reform Act. Yeah, and, and we're recording this on the, the week of September 25th, so and it'll come out on Sunday. And chances are, those of you listening, uh, hopefully anyway, this government shutdown will be avoided by then. But in the event it's not, why don't you tell our listeners the impact that a potential shutdown would or would not have on the Postal Service or and our jobs? Sure. Well, first of all, I think, you know, there is a uh, misperception on Capitol Hill that exists because, you know, we are often working with in solidarity with our federal employee union counterparts. And so oftentimes we do have to very clearly distinguish the differences between being a quasi-government agency and a, you know, a, a federal agency that is completely dependent on the appropriations process and Congress to fund their agencies. So they have till midnight on September 30th to pass a full year funding bill or a short term funding bill to avoid a government shutdown. As far as what happens if it shuts down, well, you all know the mail gets delivered and our folks get paid. But that's not the case for other federal employees. It's not the case, the impact that it has on women and children who uh, receive you know, uh, food stamps or other essential services, they will be impacted. The federal community that we are all aware of, if they're essential, uh, such as some FAA employees, they are required to work and are not paid. They're, they typically, in the past, when there have been shutdowns, they have been paid after the fact. But I don't know anyone in this economy that could survive missing one paycheck at all. So we are standing in solidarity with all of our federal uh, employee brothers and sisters to put pressure on Congress to remind them that a shutdown isn't good for anyone. And like I said, it's not just going to be the employees that get sidelined. Some will be furloughed and sent home with very little notice, but the people who do rely on services like childcare programs and disaster relief and food stamps and social security processing, that is all going to be the sort of ripple effect that 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 really does impact the overall economy. Yeah, and you think about people having to work and not getting paid. That's just seems like such a foreign and terrible concept. So it's during times like this that uh, it's definitely a positive that we are not impacted when it comes to a shutdown. So, you know, hopefully it'll be avoided because, you know, as you mentioned, we want to stand in solidarity with our other federal employee unions and with all workers out there that could be potentially impacted by this. All right, let's shift to our priorities legislatively. We've got a couple, a handful anyway, that are we're working on, and we'll get into those in a minute. But I, I, I think since we have you here, it's important for us to maybe rewind a little bit and look at you know, what's happened uh, over the last couple of years, and, and we achieved something that we've been working on for a long, long time, well over a decade, and that is passage of the Post Reform Act, addressed the post services mandate to pre-fund health benefits and made six-day delivery a permanent part of the law. And as we talked about, or I talked about on uh, an episode, you know, I explained in detail about how the Medicare integration works, but, you know, you having been 
you know, really the the leading voice on from anyone on Capitol Hill on this issue for a long time and having a, a huge role in finally making this happen, working with members of both parties. And even since then, you know, you're involved consistently with working with the Postal Service and OPM on implementation of this bill. So anything you want to share about, you know, our efforts to finally get the bill, uh, make it a reality and become law and then kind of what that process has been like for you working with them on implementation of it really up until, I guess, as late as today, and that work will continue into next year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the enactment of the Postal Service Reform Act is without question a um, one of the highest achievements that I could, I could think of when it comes to supporting our brothers and sisters here in this union and to show that we can uh, make real progress when we put our head down, when we lead the effort, when we work with stakeholders, when we engage in bipartisan work, when we put our money where our mouth is. We really did spend a, a number of years trying to find a way to address the Postal Service's finances. And I think you know, folks know that for a number of years, we we're trying to bite off more than we can chew, not only the stakeholder community, but anyone who had any kind of um, interest in the Postal Service. And so I think we realized not too long ago, probably like six or seven years ago, that the way to really make moves is to try to try to simplify what we can do rather than introducing these comprehensive bills that have red meat and that will tear the stakeholder community apart. When I say stakeholder community, I mean business and labor. Anything like that will just jam a bill up in the House and the Senate. The margins have just always been too narrow, and it's just too easy to pick off supportive members if there's a provision that they don't like. So we wanted to make sure that nothing could be derailed. So we picked the low-hanging fruit, the essentials. And so I think largely we had a really, really good 2022, you know, letter carriers on postal specific issues. I think we're one of the few industries that could say that. Our bright spots, obviously, are, you know, having the Postal Service Reform Act passed and signed into law. It repealed the pre-funding mandate that we've all been talking about for years, and many of you, a few years longer than me. Although, you know, when I was with PASS and sitting across the table with all of my sister unions in the postal community, I would roll my eyes when they would talk about the pre-funding mandate and wonder when they would just stop talking about it. And then I came over to NALC and it became a part of my vocabulary. And once the bill was signed into law, I was very happy to not have to discuss pre-funding anymore, although we're doing it right now. So anyway, that was a huge feat. And that took a lot of time. I think just backing up for a minute, we looked at the potential of what we could get passed into law. And we thought probably around 2017, 2018, that we had been hearing from members of Congress on the Hill on both sides of the aisle who were perplexed about the prefunding mandate. And when we really dug in, we realized that a majority of them weren't even here in 2006. And that majority supported eliminating it. It was just figuring out a way to make that happen. And so once we realized that, we tested out having a standalone package that would just repeal the mandate just to sort of to test the waters and see what would happen. And that passed the House handedly. And it set the stage in 2021 to build a bill around that, which we were very grateful for former Congressman uh, Peter DeFazio from Oregon, who's since retired, 
because this place has become a complete circus. So he's a smart guy to get out of here. Now he's doing better on the other end, as most members of Congress often do. So the base of that bill, obviously repealing the mandate and a huge, huge win for us here is protecting six-day delivery of mail and packages. That was one that we had to fight to the bitter end to make sure was unscathed. As you can imagine, there were attempts in the community to try to tear that language apart, but we prevailed. And the other you know, large piece of that bill that we were instrumental in, in working on was the prospective integration in Medicare Parts A and B, making sure that like our current annuitants and active 64 plus carve outs were there in a way that we were comfortable with. And then obviously the access to Medicare Part D, those were huge. And I'll say on those two pieces, you know, in the implementation of a new Postal Service health benefits plan, yes, we are very active and continue to have weekly calls with the Postal Service regarding education materials as they begin to roll out information and plan for the rollout of information in 2024 so that we are ready and all of our members and and all of our annuitants are prepared, our new employees, everyone knows what we'll be walking into. So we are in the midst of that. We've been having these weekly conversations for several months and they'll continue all the way through implementation. I can't talk about the specifics because I signed a non-disclosure agreement, but uh, we are comfortable with the progress being made there and uh, happy that we're able to do so. Um, The last thing I'll say about that bill, there are other measures, obviously, but the measures to track and improve service, you know, that was an important piece. There were lots of members of Congress who really wanted to make sure they had something that would protect uh, what they were viewing at the time as any sort of attack on service. So being able to track and, and measure gave a great deal of comfort to members of Congress. So happy there. Aside from the Postal Service Reform Act, the other bright spots that we saw were the $1.9 trillion COVID rescue plan that included the $10 billion loan for the Postal Service, uh, which was later converted to a $10 billion grant in the $1.2 trillion infrastructure law. So those were, that was a huge, huge give. And I think if if uh, if folks recall, in the midst of COVID, there was a lot of attention on the Postal Service and what would happen and whether or not anyone was planning to destroy it. And I think we, we obviously learned that that was not the case. And if anything at all, there was a very protective posture that came to be not only from customers, you know, residential customers, business customers, Congress, all of us, everyone uh, was very uniformly protective of what was a lifeline during COVID for homes and businesses. So that was a huge get. And then obviously we capped off the bright spots with a you know $3 billion in vehicle funding so that the Postal Service could begin replacing their aging fleet, which is we know um, so incredibly important, and so those are those are the bright spots. And I think I'll just say a couple things just about like the impact because it's important. Members of Congress are, they want to know that they have return on investment or that we have we didn't you know sell them a, a bill of goods that was you know a big lie. So it's nice that we can say to them and anyone who asks that we did okay. The impact is good. I mean, there was a cancellation of $57 billion in past due prefunding payments, and there was a $4 billion cut in operating loss in 2022 just due to repeal. We saw a $4 billion reduction in total net loss in 2022, going from $8.4 billion to $4.4 billion. And 
we saw $66 billion reduced liability on the balance sheet for the retiree health benefits plan, going from $108 billion down to $42 billion. And that was due to Medicare integration and the use of, use of vested liability to calculate, which is required by, by law. We also saw that the funding ratio for the Postal Service Retiree Health Benefits Plan was raised from you know 33% to 86%. So that's, you know, we've said that, we always said that this bill is not the be all and end all. I even hesitate to call it postal reform because it really was so narrow that um, we said that this is really phase one. There's going to be other things that we're gonna pursue in the future but let's start here. Let's see what's achievable. And I'm sure we'll get into this, but you know, we've said that everyone needs to do their part. And Congress did in 2022. The president signed that bill into law. But we still have other needs um, on the financial end, including this implementation of an executive order that we would like uh, President Biden to implement, having the Office of Personnel Management value our, our pensions in a way that would be more fair to the Postal Service. Right now, um, that's just not the case. And the the liability shift is heavily on the Postal Service when it should actually be a little bit little bit more onto the uh, old Post Office Department, which is on the federal government's books. So if we saw the implementation of this order, we would see losses just cut down to about $1.4 billion. And then if we look at the additional measures that would get us to even, we are having conversations about what investment of retirement funds would look like. Yeah. So there's a lot of, we kind of talk about the Postal Service's financial situation as sort of a three-legged stool. And one of those legs was propped up by the uh, the post-reform bill that we did and repealing the pre-funding and Medicare integration and Sort of the other two legs there are the Siegel study, as you mentioned, that we're working with the White House to get them to have OPM implement, and you know, then also potentially a legislative fix to allow us to better invest those tens of billions of dollars that we've the Postal Service has set aside um, for for retiree health uh, benefits payments. One of the uh, things for the listeners out there, the reform bill was very heavy on the Postal Service's finances and making them more sustainable and and really repealing very unfair mandates that they had from previous legislation that had been enacted in years past. The question of why do we even have to do that, it's very simple. Of course, we support a public postal service long term, but it's also important that our employer for reasons like job security, our collective bargaining efforts. It's it's just simply much better to negotiate with an employer that is on solid financial footing as opposed to one that is losing billions of dollars every single year. So, you know, the impact is not just for our long-term job security, but also that that's a big factor that creates the environment in which we do things like collectively bargain, give them the ability to invest in much needed upgrades, like you mentioned, the the new vehicles, next generation delivery vehicles. So there's a really a lot at stake, and we've made a lot of progress, and you know, due in large part to you know the work of all our members out there with their members of Congress, and certainly you know your work here in D.C. One thing that I uh, you know also wanted to mention is we when you were talking about the implementation of the reform bill and. You know, there's not so much specifics you could get into because you know you you signed a non-disclosure act for the listeners out there. I did not, 
So there's a, a whole podcast that talks all about that. And as we um, move into next year, when we have things like the special enrollment period that starts April 1st and we get into the normal open season where everybody will be required to do something, there'll be a lot of more communication. You'll see stuff if you're still active at the post office. If you're retired, you'll get mail, mail from the Postal Service. You'll get letters from us, and um, we continue you know, as Corey mentioned, to engage with the Office of Personnel Management and the Postal Service to, you know, get as many questions as we possibly can answered. All right, let's move into where we are now with this Congress and, and our priority legislation. And um, we've got a couple bills that are out there right now and, and then, you know, a couple more that will be introduced. But for the purposes of our conversation, I really want to focus on two pieces. One is one that is very near and dear to a lot of our retirees that are listening to this podcast, and it has to do with something called the windfall elimination provision and the government pension offset that, going back to the early 1980s, have unfairly reduced retirement pay for our civil service retirees that also qualified for Social Security. And we've had a bill called the Social Security Fairness Act that's, you know, we've had in multiple Congresses now. We've got it again in this Congress. So let's start with that bill. And if you want to tell us kind of where it is and, and something before you go to point out here is, you know, each of these pieces of legislation we're going to talk about are introduced or will be introduced in a bipartisan fashion. They're bills that have members of both parties supporting them. Uh, But let's start with Social Security fairness and maybe just give the listeners an update on where it is in terms of co-sponsors and, you know, what the outlook in this particular Congress is. So for the Social Security Fairness Act, which is H.R. 82 in the House, we have 293 co-sponsors. 199 of those are Democrats and 94 of those are Republicans. I think as uh, listeners know that uh, this bill was introduced by Abigail Spanberger from Virginia, Democrat, and this time it was introduced by Garrett Graves, fellow Louisianan. Shout out to Louisiana. Who that? Yeah. <laughs> um, so these two are leading this bill with a lot of energy, so much so that you all probably either read about or saw that the NALC participated in a rally here in Washington a couple of weeks ago, calling on passage of the Social Security Fairness Act. One thing I will say is that I think that folks remember that the reason that we were able to bring the bill, a standalone bill to the floor on a repeal years ago, was because of this rule that the House had in place. And it's called the 290 rule. And at the time, we knew that if we could reach 290 co-sponsors, it would essentially bypass the committee of jurisdiction if they failed to take action in a certain amount of time. And so we played that game and we we won. And that was great, led to all the things I've already discussed. Now, here we are with the Social Security Fairness Act at 293. And we're wondering, okay, where's the discharge petition? Let's take it to the floor. Let's go. Garrett Graves is a chair in the Republican leadership. He has a heavy amount of influence. He is safe. He is a friend of, of the NALC. Um, and he is, like I said, deeply committed to trying to get this across the finish line. But he's also uh, in leadership. And this is a very tumultuous time for the majority. It's a very narrow majority. And as you can 
probably see, depending on what has happened when this is posted Sunday, either the government is open or it's closed. Who the heck knows? Uh, But either way, um, while he's committed to getting this done, the path is rocky. You know, we came really close at the end of last Congress. A former member of Congress, Rodney Davis, who was deeply committed to this bill, tried everything he could, along with Abigail Spanberger, to insert this bill into uh, one of the last moving pieces of legislation coming out, and it was derailed. And that's unfortunate. I think uh, folks know that this bill has a significant price tag, which is part of the holdup. So whether or not we'll be able to see the 290 rule move this to the floor, that's 50-50. I know that this one is, it's a its a tough bill. It's a long shot. But in my view, this is probably the closest that we've ever been, the most amount of energy and momentum I've ever seen. It just so happens to coincide with the most wacky period I can imagine in, in D.C. and on Capitol Hill. So I think just, you know, buckle up. We're going to keep the pressure on our folks, our letter carriers have been at the forefront of pushing for this and have been a huge part of the reason that this bill has been so successful in getting co-sponsorship. So we're going to keep at it. We're going to keep making noise about it. We have a, you know, a call to action that's been posted since the beginning of this Congress, and we'll keep pushing that out, keep trying to push for more and more support and, you know, for anyone who will listen. Now, the counterpart to that bill in the Senate is S-597, and that was introduced by Sherrod Brown. You know, there's 45 co-sponsors on that bill. 36 of them are Democrats, six are Republicans, three are independent. It's not too shabby. But, you know, the, the dynamics of the Senate are even worse. So I don't see, even though the Democrats do control the Senate, I don't see a scenario where this is going to be the top of the agenda there. I think that the Senate is uh, has has been prioritizing moving nominations, and a bill like this really needs to get out of the House first, and has to be probably a part of some sort of larger deal. Yeah, and I think this is an important time to um, us to look once again just back a, a little bit to you know gain some perspective on not just the work we do here in DC but what our members do all around the country in terms of advocacy for for legislation that you know would benefit our members so we take the social security fairness act we just talked about and you know while it may be a little bit of an uphill battle in this congress there is a lesson to be learned from our efforts over the years on postal reform that, as we just talked about, we finally were able to get it signed into law last year. So those of you listening that have been around for a while will remember this, especially if you've been engaged in you know our legislative priorities. If we go back to 2009, 2010, following the Great Recession, where the Postal Service really experienced a, a very significant hit. So the recession happened in two, beginning in 2008, We saw a drastic decrease in first-class mail, which resulted in a significant decrease in the Postal Service's revenue. And even though in the couple of years that followed, 2010, 2011, the recession reversed in a lot of ways, the economy bounced back, but that mail volume and that revenue did not come back. So that brought to the surface the underlying problem of the mandate to pre-fund future retiree health benefits that this most recent Postal Reform Act addressed. And if we go back to that time period, when it became evident that that was such a problem and and we would communicate with members of Congress, with our, our fellow union members, our brothers and sisters, family, friends, the media, you name it, 
when you talked about the problematic nature of the Postal Service's mandate to pre-fund future retiree health benefits, people thought, like, looked at you like you were from outer space. They had absolutely no idea what you were talking about. In the years that followed, every two years, we would have a piece of legislation introduced that would address in some form or fashion that mandate to pre-fund health benefits, which up until the point when post-reform was passed was responsible for somewhere in the neighborhood of the low end 80% and at times even 100% of the Postal Service's losses. Every Congress that went by, we had a piece of legislation. We worked really hard on the Hill here in D.C. Our members all around the country in every congressional district lobbied their members of Congress, tried to build support for it. And as frustrating as it can be that none of those pieces of legislation throughout multiple Congresses ever saw the light of day in terms of being passed and becoming law, all that work that we did raised the education level on the issue. You fast forward to 2020, an election happens, an election for the purposes of potentially passing legislation like this, an election goes the right way. The leadership in both houses of Congress were very friendly to us, um, supporters of letter carriers, of course, in the White House with the Biden administration. And if you compare what we saw in early 2021 when this reform bill was initially introduced to what we saw all the way back in 2010, 2011, where there was no education level, it had become not just something that members of Congress and the media and the public were educated on, but it had become the universally accepted need, the universally accepted solution to the Postal Service's immediate financial woe. So the lesson that we should take away here is, you know, that even though we go through a Congress and we work really hard and a piece of legislation to get co-sponsors or whatever the case may be, and that bill does not see the light of day, it's not necessarily passed or it doesn't become law, we can still make progress. And then you have an election happen, an election goes the right way, and it can create an opportunity to make that legislation a reality. And I think that lesson that we learned over those years with postal reform is very important for us to remember when we are working, such as we are in this Congress, on on a bill like um, the Social Security Fairness Act that, you know, as you talked about, it may be an uphill battle um, in terms of, of getting it across the finish line. But we can still build support. We can still advance, you know, that bill sort of standing and, and where it is in the minds of those that could potentially vote, you know, for or against it. And then an election happens. And if that goes the right way, create that opportunity. All right. So let's move on and talk about a couple of um, legislative priorities of ours that have not yet been introduced in this Congress. We are confident that they will be. Um, the first one I want to talk about is something that, you know, as potentially has a significant impact on a sizable percentage of our members, probably over 60% of our active members. And that is legislation that would allow former non-career employees to make deposit or quote, buy back their time as a non-career employee and have that time credited for retirement purposes. Over 60% of active letter carriers have worked some time for the Postal Service as a non-career employee. Most people as CCAs, but then certainly some that worked as transitional employees and, and some that even worked as casuals, even though we haven't had casuals in many years. So the Federal Retirement Fairness Act has not yet been introduced. Um, 
but it remains a priority of ours. So, Corey, why don't you give us just uh, kind of the latest and greatest and what we can expect going forward with that piece of legislation? No problem. So on the Federal Retirement Fairness Act, obviously we saw some good gains on that bill last Congress. I think there were about 100 co-sponsors, bipartisan co-sponsors. Um, unfortunately, in this Congress, it has not been reintroduced yet. It is led by Congressman Derek Kilmer, a Democrat from Washington State, and it was led by uh, Tom Cole, Republican from Oklahoma, who happens to represent a lot of federal employees who are impacted by, by this bill. Uh, we've had some delays on on reintroduction of this bill. I'd say there's a good split of, number one, this Congress being uh, a confusing one to navigate. Secondly, the, this bill has a, a hefty price tag, which is a, a, another obstacle to overcome. One thing I didn't mention earlier is that when the Republicans took control of the House, they obviously passed a package of rules, which is how they're going to govern. And one of the things that they did in their package was change from a little method of pay as you go to cut as you go. So if there is anything that has a price tag, then it is required that you find something else to cut in order to pay for it, uh, as opposed to PAYGO, which is how can you generate revenue in order to offset the costs. So that is a challenging environment because uh, the Federal Retirement Fairness Act would have jurisdiction on the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability. That committee's jurisdiction is really the federal government. And the only, uh, I guess, pile of money, if you will, that they could look towards would be uh, federal employees' health and retirement benefits. And I think we all know, um, having been around for the last 15 years and seeing how how it ends when folks try to go after health and retirement benefits, it, it, it is not a popular idea. It's not one on either side of the aisle in this Congress that seems to be um, of interest. So that is one challenge in having it reintroduced. The second challenge right now is that Chairman Tom Cole, who's been very, very good to letter carriers and federal employees, he is now a key leader on the House Rules Committee, which takes up a lot of his time. So unfortunately, he's not going to be able to lead that bill again this Congress. So we have moved on to seeking a new Republican co-sponsor to uh, go along with Congressman Kilmer. And so we're in the midst of doing so. We have reached out to a handful of folks that make sense uh, make sense to us to lead. And so we're hoping that uh, we have that bill reintroduced in the House, you know, in the coming weeks. And uh, Derek Kilmer is committed to this legislation. We have flagged it for the House Committee on Oversight. They understand the challenges. They understand the appeal. They are certainly sympathetic, both the majority and minority. But again, um, that committee, if you haven't noticed, spends a lot of time on non federal employee specific or non-postal specific issues such as, um, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop and, uh, you know, impeachment proceedings. So there's, it's a lot, a little bit of a show. So uh, we do have to just, uh, we have to find some, some oxygen there. There is, like I said, an interest, but it will be a bit. So I know that our members ask about this bill frequently. Uh, we have not given up on it. We will work to get it reintroduced with a, you know, solid, bipartisan co-sponsors so that we can continue to make progress, just like President Renfro said. Um, it's not all about passage in in one space. It's sometimes progress is our, is our best move. And 
And we have to use a lot of patience for that, unfortunately, because uh, Rome wasn't built in a day. And the Postal Service Reform Act took, what, 10 years to to uh, finally find the right balance. And we'll do the same thing with, with this legislation, with the Social Security Fairness Act, and any other specific bills that we want to see get to the finish line. We understand the urgency, we understand the importance, but we also have to work with what we've got. And I think, you know, we have a house that's makeup is is uh, is pretty tight, you know, and there's a magic number of 218 in the house. And with the way that the house is split, 221 Republicans and 212 Democrats, that means you can't lose, you know, in order to get that 218, you've got to get six Republicans to join along with the Democrats to push something past the finish line. Or, you know, the Republicans can't lose more than, I don't know, I can't really do that math. I, you know, yeah. Anyway, uh, three. <laughs> three, can't yeah. release more than three. <laughs> and if you've been paying attention to the House, especially right now, as we are just days away from a potential government shutdown, uh, you will see that the fringes on either side of the aisle can derail almost anything. So I'll say that about the Federal Retirement Fairness Act. We are going to keep plugging away. We are going to push to get uh, someone to replace Chairman Cole. And then on the Senate side, we have a Republican senator who is interested and potentially leading. And so we will work with him and a, a Democratic lead to get that introduced. But we're going to do it on the heels of House introduction or or at least in together. So we will stay stay tuned, keep pushing, keep letting your members know, especially those who co-sponsored last Congress, that it's coming and we'll keep the pressure on. Yeah. And as soon as it's introduced, you can, as always, look in, you know, look for the NELC in our mobile app or bulletin, the postal record, the website, all those places for us to, you know, begin a, a push to start building support in terms of co-sponsors and, and things like that. Um, the other piece of legislation is has very quickly become um, what, what likely, well, not likely, it will be our top legislative priority. And we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the unfortunate rise in the number of violent crimes and, and robberies and attacks that we've seen on city carriers around the country over the last few years. And we spent an entire episode um, talking about that issue and, and throughout several of the other episodes, we've talked about to some degree, you know, different events that we have around the country. And uh, th- this remains, along with collective bargaining, our top, top focus. And one of the potential pieces of the solution to start to turn this trend of increasing crime is a legislative solution. And, you know, I know you and I have spent time um, with uh, a particular member of Congress who's got a law enforcement background and is a great friend to letter carriers and, and currently is working on some legislation that um, that would be potentially significant in terms of making a difference there. So why don't you tell us about the the bill that we have in the works to address some of the crime issues that we're seeing. Sure. Now, before I do, I'll say this. There's a lot of energy and momentum and a lot of questions coming from Capitol Hill about crime. What we've noticed is that a lot of the questions and the interests are about figuring out how to secure the physical infrastructure of the Postal Service, like the arrow keys or the blue boxes or things that are not us. And we have um, had lots of conversations with offices about how those are all, you know, fine, dandy, swell, lovely, but they are not something that is going to give us much um, comfort 
so we have wanted to look at at options that will actually get at the core of what could stop some of these crimes from happening. And what we realize is that prevention is really key here. And so in order to do that, we started to have conversations with our friend, Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick, who's a Republican from Pennsylvania. He is the chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is a bipartisan group of middle of the road Republicans and Democrats. And what they typically do is when there is a food fight over an issue, they try to dig up common ground and find a way to appeal to the moderates on either end. And, you know, some might call them the problem causers, but in the end, when there are big issues, they actually do put forward ideas that are oftentimes turned into results. So it's very helpful to engage them. They were very helpful to us during postal reform. And uh, Congressman Fitzpatrick was a former FBI agent and was also a special prosecutor. So he has a unique skill set and background in understanding how these crimes are prosecuted and what might be needed. Or not prosecuted. Or not prosecuted, really. (laughs) And that's something that we learned as well, because we're hearing that the way that law enforcement handles each issue on the ground is completely different. And depending on the type of information they gather and then pass on to the U.S. Attorney's Office, the U.S. Attorney's Office may determine that it's insufficient, not enough, and then some cases are never even, are not prosecuted. So there's a number of issues there. But The key here that we discussed with Congressman Fitzpatrick is, number one, is addressing, you know, the the arrow key replacement and looking at funding for that. The other key is a potential funding increase for inspectors. And then the the other part that we thought was really, really helpful is having a dedicated funded prosecutor in all 53 of the U.S. Attorney's offices and then the the sort of uh, the icing on that cake would be stiffer sentencing. These are the things that we think would be a deterrent and they speak to protection of our craft specifically. And I think it would be a great place to start. And uh, the congressman and his team are currently drafting legislation. And as they do, we'll be working with them along the way. And we will encourage as much support for that legislation as possible. And I don't think that we will see a whole lot of pushback. I don't know if anyone was watching the nightly news, but attacks in general are on the rise. People are getting robbed in broad daylight. And our folks just so happen to be targeted because of, you know, what what you all what you all have. And so this is something that I think will get a lot of attention in a bipartisan way. And I think hopefully at the end of the day, we can maybe see this as an example of where Republicans and Democrats can come together and once again do something beneficial to protect our members. Yeah, we're really, you know, appreciative of uh, Congressman Fitzpatrick is and has been for a while now a great friend of of letter carriers and you know as Corey mentioned has a really unique understanding due to his history as you know not just working for the FBI but you know also being an attorney that's that's prosecuted crime. So you know, nothing to me highlights the need for legislation like this more so than just a really disturbing statistic that I know I've mentioned at some of the rallies we've had around the country, and that is that 14% of these crimes against postal employees are prosecuted federally, and that is a sends a very 
currently sends a very strong message to those that uh, may potentially want to commit these crimes against our members that 86% of people that do it get away with it. And that's likely, you know, the biggest way that we can hopefully begin to make an immediate difference through, uh, through legislation. You know, Brian, I, I wanted to add one more thing sure. because I think it, it helps, it helps the cause here earlier this year, um, Congressman Jerry Connolly in Northern Virginia, mm-hmm. Democrat, he had to, I know this is a little uh, slightly unrelated, but just goes to show how much interest there is in supporting and protecting our members. Earlier this year, two congressional staffers working in his district office were attacked by a crazy person. And the only reason that that crazy person stopped attacking these two staffers is because the letter carrier who was delivering across the hall heard a commotion came in, drew this crazy person's attention his way, and potentially saved the lives of these two staffers. And the very next day, charges were filed against this person. And the way it's supposed to be, that that is the way it is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Those are federal employees. We are federal employees. That's how, that's what we're aiming for, is that level of attention and that level of speed and making sure that our members are protected. Because if word gets out, that you're not going to get away with it, that's going to help save save some of our folks on the route. And that is what we want to do on the Hill. And I think there is no member of Congress out there that would oppose that. Yeah, just providing that deterrent. And, and that's a really good example, I guess, to just go even a step further and, and tie it back into our overall efforts as it relates to this crime. I mean, that one was obviously notorious in terms of news coverage because it was a member of Congress's office. But you know, everyone, chances are a lot of people listening to this podcast that are letter carriers and NALC members have done things, you know, throughout your career to help folks in our community. And, and really, when we do these these rallies that, you know, we've got a couple coming up in California and, and we've done, you know, a couple already and we get local media out there, the idea is just to raise public awareness of this. You know, the concept of we look out for our customers and, you know, just simply asking them to to look out for us. So this piece of legislation should be something, hopefully we we do see the bipartisan support that we expect. And, you know, as always, I'm confident in in our members' um, ability to educate, you know, their own members of Congress and, and build that support. And just to be clear, you know, for everyone that's listening, when this bill is introduced, this will become NALC's number one legislative priority. Um, not the only priority, but it is the most urgent. There's nothing more important than the health and safety of our members, and and this goes directly to the health and safety of our members. All right, let's shift gears just a little bit, still within our kind of government affairs realm, and talk some about the White House. You know, we talked uh, briefly about you know one thing that the White House could do, which we'll get a little more in depth on, that has to do with the Postal Service's pension accounts, but. Beyond just what everyone knows, that the the president is responsible for signing legislation after it into law after it passes both houses of Congress, and you know with this administration, we definitely you know have not lacked any support in terms of our legislative priorities. But there are other points of influence where the administration at any particular point in time can have significant significant impact on the postal service. So. You know, for everyone listening, you you have, when it comes to the, the structure of the Postal Service, you've got kind of the operational arm, which is the Postal Service themselves, 
led by the Postmaster General. You've then got a regulatory body called the Postal Regulatory Commission that's responsible for regulating, for the most part, things such as pricing, services, when the Postal Service decides to offer new products, those kinds of things. Then you've got the governance piece that, similar to a lot of corporate structures in the private industry, there's a board that oversees everything postal and everything to do with the Postal Service called the Board of Governors. And the White House, the president, is responsible for nominating commissioners to go on the Postal Regulatory Commission, that regulatory bit, and for nominating governors to serve on the Board of Governors that have a significant amount of influence on both present and the future direction of the Postal Service. Now, those nominees, once the White House nominates them, they have to be confirmed in the United States Senate. And I thought since we've got a little bit of activity happening on both fronts there that this would be a really good time to update the listeners on the latest and greatest with the Postal Regulatory Commission and the Board of Governors. Yeah, let's start with the Postal Regulatory Commission because that is the that is on the menu right now. So, like President Renfro said, there are two commissioners or two openings with the Postal Regulatory Commission. Uh, there are two folks who have been nominated and are currently finding their way to the finish line in the Senate nomination process. And uh, the first is a uh, current commissioner, Robert Taub. Uh, he served as, as the chairman and he has been renominated. He has moved through the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. He moved through just a couple weeks ago. I don't know. I'm losing all track of time. And then uh, the second commissioner, uh, Robert Todd, would be holding uh, what would be considered a Republican seat. And the second commissioner that w- has been nominated is Thomas Day. Um, he would be new to the Postal Regulatory Commission, but he has been around for quite some time working in postal service management for the bulk of his career. Um, he was nominated to fill the Democratic spot. Both had hearings, both have, you know, like I said, advanced the committee. Thomas Day uh, advanced the committee yesterday, which today is Thursday, almost the end of September. And um, before the government potentially shuts down, the Senate uh, is using this process so that they don't have to expend any floor time it's called unanimous consent, and it's basically where leader uh, Chuck Schumer will put out a hotline to every single Senate office to see if there's any objections to either of these two. They like to move nominees in pairs, especially you know on the postal end of things, and usually in other spaces too. Obviously, you can't do that when it comes to judicial nominees, but in, in our case, it's all, almost always moving in a pair, an R and a D. The reason they do that, obviously, is so that they can make a deal. Um, you know, it's the, the leader Schumer can choose and the White House can choose the Democrats that kind of make their way through. And, um, you know, leader McConnell can do the same on his end. Now, Robert Taub has been around for a really long time, has has no, you know, no pushback. I think the, the general stakeholder community is very happy with the work that he's done on the PRC. And um, we don't expect any pushback for Thomas Day. I think on the committee, when they were voting him out, there were a few nayers out there, but that's just kind of what they do. So they have run a hotline on both of these two. And um, we will see probably by the end of today whether or not someone objects. And uh, we've said this uh, for, you know many a times when we've been following the noms process, it only takes one. So if there is a senator out there who has a 
has a, you know, a nail in their claw for some reason, they could just stop the whole thing. And that means they would then have to find precious Senate floor time to advance these two. I think that the hotline will come back clean. I think that they'll be confirmed one way or another. That deadline's approaching and no one wants to see vacancies there. So I think it's just a matter of time before those, those two take their seats. On the Board of Governors, slightly different. There are two governors currently that are serving in a holdover year. Their terms expired December of 2022. And with a holdover year, they obviously get to stay in until December 2023 or until a, a replacement is found. So the White House plans to renominate William Zollers, who is in a Republican spot. And then they are determining uh, whether or not they will be renominating Captain Lee Moak, who is our union brother from former president of the Airline Pilots Association. Um, it seems pretty likely that there will be a different Democratic nominee that may be selected by the White House. Uh, we have continued to actively engage the White House with our opinions on some of the names that they have brought forward in the past. Uh, I think what we learned during COVID and with the arrival of a new postmaster general that frankly, scared a lot of the the public during COVID is that everyone and their mother believes they can now serve on the Board of Governors. And we don't agree with that. We think that there is a specific skill set, specific understanding, and a specific dynamic um, that needs to be present on the board. Every governor that's there has their own sort of background that can be beneficial to making decisions for the Postal Service. So we are always going to encourage a well-rounded board and we will continue to not only offer suggestions and feedback. <laughs> feedback is a is the positive term. Just one word for it. Feedback. Yeah. We offer a lot of feedback. Yeah. So. Yeah, and we're um, you know, as Corey mentioned, we our expectation is that that the two nominees for uh, the post regulatory commission w- will be confirmed here reasonably soon. There's always a possibility there could be an objection and. Commissioner Taub has been on the commission for years, has, has done a good job. He's someone that has our support. And um, the newest nominee on the Democratic side, Tom Day, we've obviously spoken with him and, you know, spent some time with him and uh, think he, you know, also has uh, the right approach to the issues that the PRC deals with. Uh, for those of you listening that attended our national convention last year in Chicago in 2022, which I would suspect that a number of our listeners did. You may remember Corey mentioned Captain Lee Moak, who's uh, currently one of our governors. Um, he spoke at our convention. He's a, a union brother. He's really done an excellent job as uh, as a member of that board of governors. You know, representing as a union guy, representing the interests of the workers, and you know, being a great friend of the NALC. While at the same time, you know, really working with the leadership at the Postal Service in a in a very productive way. So. Uh, whether it's it's uh, Captain Moak that's renominated, which you know has has always been our preference based on what he's done, or someone else, I can promise you that the NALC remains continuously engaged in that process of you know communicating with the White House, keeping our eyes and ears open, so to speak, for people that would, in our view, be good candidates to fill these roles. That would you know do a couple things. Of course, look out for the interest of 
um, the workers and the members of our union, but, you know, at the same time, be productive members that, you know, we guarantee uh, and share a vision that we have of the future of the Postal Service as a, as a public service that, you know, continues to serve at the level, if, if not even um, increase the services that we provide going forward. So we are very heavily engaged in that process and, and we'll continue to, to stay engaged there. The other thing with the administration, and I referenced this briefly uh, early on uh, in this episode, where we talked about the Postal Reform Act and and how you could almost view the the Postal Service's financial the the needs um, financially for the Postal Service to be in a very sustainable place going forward as sort of a three legged stool, and the Postal Reform Act was one of those as it addressed the pre funding and. The second is something we also talked a little bit about and has to do with kind of a, frankly, a a nerdy topic of how they're able to invest um, the billions of dollars that they've already set aside for healthcare for retirees in the future. They're they're at this point in time, very limited to very low yield investments. And um, we all know the cost of, of health benefits and healthcare goes up every year, just allowing them to invest in a way that would allow at minimum that money they've set aside to keep up with the rate of, of inflation that happens on average year to year. I think it's around seven or eight percent for healthcare premiums and, and health benefits. But the third piece um, is something that we have long, long um, pushed with multiple administrations now, um, and that is to have the administration direct the Office of Personnel Management to utilize accepted private sector practices in their valuation of the Postal Service's pension assets. And uh, in just a minute, I'm going to let Corey talk about you know, kind of where we are with this and and the activity surrounding it. But I think first, it's important to, in the most basic level I can, explain the issue and then what the potential impact would be, you know, should this be resolved. So prior to 1970, the there was no postal service. The There was a post office department that was a full-fledged agency of the federal government, uh, no different than the Department of Labor, the Department of Energy, or the Department of Education, you know, that we know today. And, you know, because of that, postal employees at the time, including city carriers, were very limited. They were dependent on Congress to give pay increases. Just think about what that would look like for a minute if that was the case today. And all this led to uh, a really historic moment, certainly in our union's history, perhaps the most historic moment, and also a very historic and monumental time in the history of the labor movement in this country when letter carriers in New York City and Manhattan, led by, at the time, a, a rank-and-file letter carrier named Vince Brado, who went on to become NELC's greatest president, um, led a wildcat strike that quickly spread across the country in March of 1970. And that strike led to the passage of legislation called the Postal Reorganization Act of 1970. And among other things, that bill created the Postal Service as we know it today. It established, really shifted from the old post office department to the Postal Service as an independent federal agency. So one that was still connected to uh, the federal government in ways that we've spent a significant amount of time today explaining and and talking about, 
um, but also making it a self-sustaining model where, you know, the, their operational expenses are, are born based on the sale of postage. So um, that happened in 1970. So the issue that is currently on the table that, that we're going to talk about here has to do with the way the Office of Personnel Management, who is the government agency that administers retirement and retirement benefits for all federal employees, including postal employees, the valuation they have done for the portion of pension assets that were the obligation of the Postal Service post-1970 and the obligation of the old Post Office Department, therefore the federal government, pre-1970. We believe, and this has been backed up by numerous studies uh, back in 2000, over 10 years ago now, 2012, the Postal Regulatory Commission commissioned a study in a company called Siegel did a study and they found that OPM's valuation of these pension assets had resulted in the Postal Service having tens of billions of dollars of obligation for civil service retirement on their books that they should not have, that should be the responsibility of the federal government. So the ask here for us is very simple, either through an executive order or simply an instruction to instruct the Office of Personnel Management to conduct a valuation using accepted, very widely known accounting practices that would then result, if that is done, in the Postal Service having their pension assets overfunded by, it it could at this point even be approaching $100 billion. It's tens of billions of dollars. And while that is not you know, the, the result would not be an immediate, you know, access to $100 billion in cash for the Postal Service. By law, overpayment in their pension assets, uh, a percentage is transferred each year, um, beginning here in a couple of years, into the Postal Service Health Benefits Trust Fund. So we project, and the, the other professionals in this field project, that if this instruction was done, this recalculation was done, what would happen is beginning in 2025, you would have somewhere in the neighborhood of $2.5 billion a year you would begin to be transferred from that overpayment into the Postal Service Retiree Health Trust Fund. The sort of net result of that is that's $2.5 billion a year that the Postal Service does not have to pay into that fund to pay for retiree health. Now, this is very different than the pre-funding mandate. It is simply the fact that that money by law would be transferred, therefore they would essentially experience a two and a half, roughly two and a half billion dollar a year um, additional cash just by virtue of them not having to pay that money into the fund, which could be used for all sorts of things. Um, There's investment in infrastructure, a great example of that is a new vehicle project that we've been talking about for what seems like an eternity now that we'll finally see on the road. And also, you know, things like uh, paying wages and benefits of employees, which a stronger postal service financially is is of great benefit, not just for job security for postal workers, but certainly to the collective bargaining environment. So the ask is actually it's a complicated problem and, and you can go you know, as deep as you want to go. And there are certainly people that have the education level and understanding to do that. 
But the ask is actually very simple. It's just simply to direct OPM to recalculate those assets. So um, I know we've worked with previous administrations and made attempts to do this, uh, both with the Trump administration as well as with the Obama administration, without success, and go all the way back to the, the Biden campaign. So, Corey, maybe if you want to start there with you know what our efforts have been and kind of leading up to today where we stand with potentially having President Biden you know, issue an executive order or that instruction. Yeah. Well, let's rewind back to 2010 for a second when the PRC issued this report, uh, basically stating that, you know, private sector accounting practices would would be a, a more accurate sort of assessment in, in calculating the Postal Service's liabilities. And we call that sort of just postal only. Like, like the president said, you know, it's a cost shift that is wholly unfair to the Postal Service, and if corrected and if done in this fair and widely accepted manner called Siegel, we would be overfunded. Now, back in 2010, I think letter carriers remember, uh, we had someone in leadership uh, in in the House on our committee of jurisdiction, and uh, his last name is Isa, and they're supposed to be. You had to bring him up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because at some point, this was a, a bit of a legislative issue. And being the sweetheart that he is, he just, um, you know, he poo pooed all over this thing and and ruined the ability for it to be a, a legislative issue. And that kind of buried it as far as being a conversation uh, until, you know, we made some progress and saw him go somewhere else and then vacate a seat. And then he decided to come back. I mean, if I was that rich, I probably just wouldn't, I would just stay home, but here he is. Flash forward. We obviously have the Biden administration. There was the Obama administration that we had encouraged to make this change. Unfortunately, it didn't happen under that administration, but president Biden had made some promises as the vice president that one day he would be in a different position to, to make, make this change. And we have continued to put pressure on the president and the president's uh, staff to make it happen. We have been working with the other four postal unions in communicating that this is a high priority, if not the highest priority that we have for them. Uh, We have explained to anyone who will listen just as we said earlier, that postal reform uh, was not not it. It can't be. That's not all of it. We, you know, there's it's, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three. Everybody's got to do their part. So we are now in a space where we continue to push the White House to make this change, and we are hopeful that they will do so. When there is an issue like this, where in the White House there are folks that have been around long enough to remember Daryl Issa in 2010. And then when there are other folks in the White House who have other ambitions, um, there's a difference of opinion. And I think that those those folks are trying to work it out. And when there is a difference of opinion, someone else has to step in and sort of make the make the calls. And ultimately, this call should be and would be made by the president. And we are going to continue to remind the administration that that is their call. And it is one that would make the postal service more healthy. And so without, you know, with, <laughs> with, without, without too much negativity, I will say that we will continue to put pressure on. And I, I think that 
the fact that the four postal unions have been pushing for it together, the fact that the Postal Service has actively engaged the White House to also make this change, I think um, helpful or not, but er the, the point being that when there is a collective stakeholder voice calling for something, it, it makes it harder to ignore. But, you know, like, like Brian said, it's a complicated issue. Not many people understand it. Frankly, there are still people in this world that do not understand the difference between the Retiree Health Benefits Fund and our pension accounts. And there are still members on the Hill who congratulate themselves often about passing a bill that uh, that relieved our pensions. And so God bless America. I take every opportunity to correct them, and I hope you all do as well. So that's where this 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 is uh, this is held, and that's all I can say about that. <laughs> yeah, th this is a, a very you know important issue, and as I'm sure the listeners can tell, it's one that we are uh, particularly passionate about, and sometimes with that passion comes some frustration. So. Um, but it does have broad support as far as uh, the Postal Service is with it, as Corey mentioned. Um, there's Even though it's not really a legislative ask, there certainly is um, bipartisan support for the concept on Capitol Hill and will continue to remain engaged and, and keep this you know, as, as our priority for the, the administration. I mean, there's no question about what our number one priority is in terms of, of the administration. Okay, last thing that I think is very timely for us to discuss, because as you've heard over the last, I guess, hour or so, there's a lot of activity, just as there has been for a number of years, as far as our involvement on Capitol Hill and with the White House and, and all of the different things that that happen. And, you know, that these efforts are really fueled by something called the Letter Care Political Fund. And, you know, I, recognizing that our listeners, I'm sure there's a lot of you, probably, hopefully most of you that listen are contributors and members of the Letter Care Political Fund. Um, but just first a little bit about exactly what it is. And, and then I'm going to let Corey get into, you know, how it benefits our efforts, because she really is the front and has been for you know, 10 years now, the person that's really out front in terms of utilizing that money and uh, both politically as far as elections and getting folks elected as well as growing our influence. Um, so we as a union are prohibited from using dues money for political purposes or to support political candidates. Frankly, we would even choose not to do that if it was not prohibited by federal election law. So the way that we fund our efforts on that front is through voluntary contributions from our members to something called the Letter Care Political Fund. Uh, our PAC is unique in, in a number of ways. Number one, it is bipartisan. We have, in past Congresses, literally supported the most conservative and the most liberal member of that particular Congress. And it's very simply, if a member of Congress supports us, then, then we support them. And we'll talk here in the end about uh, what we can do and, and how, you know, you can, if you're interested in it, how you can sign up and participate and maybe help educate, you know, your brothers and sisters there in your branch or state association. But um, let's go from there. Um, Corey, I think you could give us some good, you know, our listeners, some really good perspective in terms of where 
we are as far as, you know, other unions have PACs too. And, you know, look, I could go to any group of letter carriers and, and go around the room and say, everybody express your opinion on the campaign finance system in the United States. And I'm pretty sure most of them would agree with me that it's disgusting. But the fact of the matter is in Washington, D.C., that's the way the game is played. And if you don't play the game, you're not going to win. You're going to lose. And and we as a union, our job is to represent letter carriers. And we are not into losing for letter carriers. We're into winning. So why don't you give our listeners just some just information about our pack and kind of how it stacks up with others and, you know, maybe some more about how we use it to, you know, not just for elections and electing people, but, you know, also to help us build relationships and grow influence and all those sorts of things. Yeah. Why don't I start with this? Because this is one of my favorite subjects. And in, in my estimation, it's all about progress and building an army of letter carrier allies on the Hill, which is what we were able to do to get the Postal Service Reform Act to the finish line. And sometimes that means, you know, giving outside of our comfort zone. And the best way to build a relationship is by showing up and getting in front of members of Congress. And that is oftentimes through the spaghetti dinner they have in the district or some cheese cubes here in DC, whatever it is, they know who is there to support them in their reelection and it's a it's a dirty dirty game there are packs that bring in lots and lots of money and just to give you a little bit of context like for looking at sort of the top 20 packs nationwide forget labor and industry let's just say like nationwide the one that um well there's there's a couple number 1 Act Blue, which is, you know, I think folks recognize as being one that that raises a lot of money for obviously Democrats. And then there's Win Red, which does the same thing on the Republican side. We're talking, I mean, two billion, one point one billion. I mean, these these people bring in a ton of money. And let's just look at one that we would recognize. Our friends at the Service Employees International Union. They brought in $90 million in the 2022 cycle. That's insane. It's a ton of money. It's amazing. And their reach is very, very broad. Um, For us at the letter carriers, we punch well above our weight class. We bring in a solid amount. Last cycle, we brought in just shy of $7 million. And when I say cycle, that means for 2021 and 2022. That is a very respectable amount of money given the fact that most of our members have never been asked. At this point, I think we have 11% of our members that are contributing to the pack, and that is amazing. And the level at which, the average level at which our members give is usually around 5 to $10. And so we do really, really well with that money. We are able to manage candidate priorities on both sides of the aisle. We're able to be responsive to leadership requests on both sides of the aisle. And some big ticket priorities, obviously, we're able to use that money to get out on the ground with the AFL-CIO every cycle. So we we definitely, we do our part and then some, and everyone knows it. Now that said, it's it's certainly not $90 million and and it may not ever be, but if that 10, 11% of our members that gave just doubled, we would obviously be looking at potentially 14 million a cycle. And that is just 
that's incredible to think about the reach that we that we could have and the amount that we would be able to to begin to allocate in other other areas. Um, you know, we obviously focus on federal candidates and federal PACs because we're federal employees. But I think letter carriers know that there's a lot that happens down at the state level and maybe one fine day. You know, maybe one fine day we're able to get involved in some of those types of issues at the state level, such as like vote by mail. Maybe one day we'll see. But um, but we have we have we do a we do a tremendous job with the money that our members so graciously and voluntarily give to the PAC. But I, you know, like I said, we we punch above our weight class, and when we look at just the industry of you know the postal space, you know the the private shippers and others. We're 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 among the top in that space, and it definitely um, has created a space where members of Congress know who you are, and they want to know what you think, and they are constantly asking for our opinions because we're out there, we're supporting them, we're working with them, we're staying close, we're letting them know when things are happening on the ground or not happening on the ground. We're giving them feedback, we're doing all the things. So we are one hundred percent present and playing politically as much as we can. Yeah, and it's interesting that you you mentioned a couple of very large, you know, super PACs there in the beginning. And, you know, while the campaign finance uh, world here just feels dirty from start to finish, our PAC is different in many ways than a lot of the, the very large super PACs that you see around here where you've got big corporate dollars coming from corporations and things like that. In a lot of ways, our pack is is a clear demonstration of what solidarity and being union brothers and sisters is all about. It's about a little bit from a lot of people to build a collective influence. And the, the last thing that, that I'll mention before we wrap up is just to be very blunt about the potential impact that this Letter Care Political Fund can have on our efforts we spent a lot of time on today's podcast talking about things like the Social Security Fairness Act, the Federal Retirement Fairness Act, these this legislation that is have been priorities of ours for some time now. And, you know, we have 10, 11 percent of our members contributing to our PAC. It is if that number was 50 percent of our members there is a very strong chance we would not be talking about those bills as priority legislation. They would already be law. And, you know, that is, is there's no guarantees, of course, but it, it is just a simple matter of fact that the more people that participate, the larger that pack becomes, the larger our influence becomes in terms of getting folks elected from both parties that support us, as well as continuing to build those relationships that allow us to, you know, not just convince people to vote yes or vote no, but, you know, in, in many cases, convince members of both parties to become, you know, champions for, for our issues. So, well, Corey, I want to thank you for uh, taking some time and joining us today. And I think this is an appropriate time because so far, I believe on this podcast that the listeners have only heard from me and you know, our letter care staffers, but I, I want you all the listeners to know that we here at NALC, you know, us as officers and our letter care staffers are most often the folks that uh, um, are, are most visible to our members because, you know, we're the ones that are out in the field. And if you call here, depending on the issue, you, you more than likely talk to one of those folks. But we also have an outstanding staff of professionals in all sorts of fields that work here and do a lot of 
you know, really have the same level of dedication and commitment to our members that that the letter cares have. And that ranges from folks that work in places like our finance department and our membership department, those folks that are branch secretaries and treasurers and trustees that are listening, you know how important that is, to folks that work in legal and human resources and, and you name it. We've got a, a ton of professionals. And, and I bring it up, I think it's appropriate at this time that we've had Corey on. She's the chief of staff here. So she is kind of the, the leader of, of that entire group. And uh, we're very fortunate to have the folks that we do that, you know, are, are again, just as dedicated to our members as any letter care that works in this building. Last thing I'm going to mention, and the folks that are in this room might throw something at me or edit this out. I don't know. Um, but to start, you've listened to Corey talk about all these issues and it's, you know, pretty evident, you know, her passion and, um, you know, blunt to some degree and uh, success as a lobbyist. But just to mention, she there's a magazine here in Washington, D.C. called The Hill Magazine that every list publishes um, a list of the top lobbyists in Washington, D.C. And in 2022, she was named one of the top lobbyists for the fourth year in a row. And I expect uh, fully that we'll see that again later this year. So also, I want to mention, because we haven't done it so far on this podcast, two of our other professional staffers, Madeline Alvis and Sarah Thomas, who uh, work in communications for us, and they are the ones that produce this podcast and make it so all those of us that are on it have to do is sit down and start talking, and um, they do do an outstanding job. So you guys can't see them or hear them, but thank you all. You guys do a wonderful job. So, Corey, is there anything you'd like to add about our uh, professionals? We have the absolute best staff there is here in D.C. and our LPOs out in the field and everyone who takes the time to respond and work with and stay in front of your members of Congress. It is the most significant thing that letter carriers can do so that we can stay at the forefront and uh, not on that menu we talked about earlier. Yep. We often say that... uh... You know, while we do an extensive amount of work here in D.C. on Capitol Hill and, and with the administration and use a lot of different professionals as well as our officers and staff here at headquarters to our lobbying efforts, it is just as important and, frankly, sometimes even more important, the work that our members do in district with their members of Congress and, and with their senators. So um, this has been a fun conversation. I appreciate you joining us. Um, look forward to uh continuing our work and hopefully next time we're on to record we'll be reporting some good news about a bill passed or something great happened at the white house okay let's get into the ask the mailbag segment if you have a question that we haven't answered please send it to social at nalc.org social at nalc.org first question this week comes from justin ainsworth Comanche, Texas, Branch 950. He says, I see that one of the items on the national agreement resolutions is to provide credit on the pay schedule for the time served as a CCA or former CCA. Is this being considered for TE time as well as CCA time? Well, fortunately, um, it, it doesn't have to be considered for TE time because we already have an agreement to do just that. So this initially was part of 
the 2016 national agreement. So if you if you go look in our most recent national agreement, the 2019 agreement, to beginning on the bottom of page 177, there is a memorandum of understanding entitled Step Credit for Former Transitional Employees. And in a nutshell, anyone that served as a TE after September 29th, 2007, if they have two to three years of TE service, they get one step, three to four years, two steps, four to five years, three steps, five or more years, four steps. So when this went into effect, the advancement for those that had already been converted prior to May 26, 2018 happened on May 26. For everyone else that has time as a TE after September 29, 2007, when they are converted to a career position or, or whenever they were converted, and there's a few out there could still be converted in the future, um, they are given that step credit and advanced in the pay scale. So if I, I'll say, I'm not sure if, if the question is specific to your own circumstance, but if you have, you know, at least two years of TE time after September 29, 2007, and you don't think you had been advanced in the pay scale, you know, contact your branch officer. Or certainly you can call your national business agent's office, and we'd be happy to look into that and double check on your behalf. Our next question comes from Frank Sauer in Northwest Florida. Is there a possibility that letter carriers can have their scheduled day only option for the overtime desired choices? Other crafts have that option and many carriers would benefit from that option, as well as better scheduling options for management. Yeah, so that, is it a possibility? Yes. This is something that is an official bargaining position of NALC. So the delegates at uh, a previous convention had approved this this resolution to create a list that would people that would only work their their scheduled day off. We also have resolutions that would create lists for those that may desire to work overtime on any anywhere on their regularly scheduled day, but not work their non-scheduled day. As of recording this podcast, we do not have an agreement yet, but I can tell you that the creation of those types of lists have been on the table in this round of negotiation, and it's it's certainly something that is still on the table within the context of other changes and, you know, in our view, improvements to Article 8, that uh, it's definitely a possibility that that a change in that regard could end up happening in this agreement. So we'll continue to pursue that, and uh, hopefully we're able to, to reach agreement that would incorporate, you know, not just the, the change you suggested, but again, also some address some other issues that we've had some problems with, such as maximum work hour violations and those kinds of things. And our final question comes from Wayne in South Carolina. He enjoyed seeing the enough is enough protest that we had or informational pickets, and he wants to know if we're doing any more. We do. We have two planned coming up in California. So first on October the 4th, which is uh, just a few days after hopefully most people are listening to this podcast, in Compton, California, we've got a rally plan where uh, we'll I'm sure have a great turnout and and working on getting a lot of the media from the LA area out there. And then the following week, October the 12th, we will have one in uh, branch 1111 in Oakland, California. So those um, materials have been distributed that our people in those branches and out in region one with uh, NBA Keisha Lewis are doing a great job of getting the word out. I am uh, excited about being able to be at both of those and, you know, continue our efforts to raise awareness and hopefully, you know, every member of the public that, that we're able to educate on this, you never know. That could be the difference in uh, one of these crimes happening or a witness to one of these crimes. So 
we'll continue to plan those as we have opportunities in, in the locations where we're experiencing these crimes. And I'm sure we'll talk about those two uh, once they're complete here on the podcast. And we'll definitely do our part to uh, notify our, our listeners uh, where we have future ones planned as well. And that was our Ask the Mailbag segment. If you have a question you'd like to submit, please email us at social and nalc.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of You Are the Current Resident Podcast. Please subscribe so that you don't miss an episode, and please share the podcast with our NALC brothers and sisters. You can follow the NALC on social media in Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Threads. You can find links to our accounts in the episode description. And you can follow President Renfro on Twitter at BrianRenfro19. If you have any questions to submit or have feedback about the podcast, again, please email us at social at NALC.org. May your steward be by your side, and may your union have your back. Thanks for listening. See you next week.